Well, good morning. Someone said it over there. I heard it. We probably don't pray that prayer enough, do we? Come, Lord Jesus, come. But as you know, the only way that this world is going to get restored is when Jesus comes. And so it's probably a prayer that we need to pray more often, and Jesus actually tells us that. Um, Let me pray for us, um, and then I want to jump into the book of Proverbs that we've been looking at for the past few weeks. Um, So, Father, we thank you that um, you leave uh, Jesus when Jesus left, left the Spirit. Father, we ask that your Spirit would teach us, that you would guide us during this time. Father, we do ask that you would send Jesus to return, that you restore the brokenness of this world, that you would bring us, your people, home, and that we would once again be in full relationship with you. And so, Father, until that time that we get to be uh, your people here, participate for what you have for us on this earth. So, Father, we ask that you would guide our time today and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm going to just start by reading some Proverbs. Um, We're going to talk about... um, Well, I'm just going to read them and you'll probably figure that out. Proverbs chapter 3, 13 and 14 says this, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Take my discipline, not silver, and my knowledge rather than fine gold, because wisdom is better than jewels. Nothing you can desire equals it. A stingy person is in in a hurry to get rich, not realizing that poverty is about to overtake him. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but righteous people will flourish like a green leaf. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not rely on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path smooth. A rich person is wise in his own eyes, but a poor person with understanding sees right through him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So Solomon, the human author of Proverbs, the wisest, wealthiest king in history, has a lot to say about the subject of money. Last week we talked about wisdom in prayer. We said there was only three Proverbs actually that speak directly into prayer, but they they actually play themselves out in many other ways. There's actually over a hundred Proverbs that deal with the subject of money and how we apply wisdom to, to seek and to use God's money wisely. As we go through um, Proverbs, um, this book of wisdom, we want to specifically talk about the subject of money today and how we steward our finances. And I know that when we, when we talk about money, there is always a stigmatism that goes out there. Is that the right word? I think that's something just in your eye. Stigma, yeah. Stigma, yes. I'm thinking about Brad. Brad's got pink eye at his house. That's why you're going to go to my house today. Um, not because I don't want you there, but if when you get there, you'll see that it kind of looks like a house. We're under construction, and so you have to go through a green fence. There's a porta potty over here, and you go in, and there's a bunch of stud walls. But we set up these nice chairs for you and a table, so it'll be very nice, I think. Um, anyway, there'll be lunch there. Um, or you can go to Brad's house and get pink eye. Um, 
So anyway, I know there's a lot of emotions um, that come with this when we talk about money, both personally and as churches, because many individuals and many churches have actually abused this subject, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and have taught bad theology, which always leads to selfish gain. And that doesn't mean because that has happened in the past that we should actually shy away from this subject. Also, we're not talking about this because as a church, we're in some final deficit that we, man, I cannot talk today, financial deficit that we need to make up. We're not talking about it because of that. We're committed to talking about finances because the wisdom and how we deal with money is an important issue because it's a gospel issue. And talking about the way that we steward our money and our finances is really a perfect forum to talking about what Jesus has done and how he's been so gracious and so generous with us. And so I want to talk about money because I know that this is an area that is super intertwined um, into, into everyone's life. And it's often um, one that controls many other areas of our lives. Many other areas that God has called us to steward his image in our lives is often controlled by money. And money is, money is a good indicator of what we actually think and who we think is the most important and who's in charge. And if our job, if our role is to be disciples who make disciples, we're going to have to talk about money. We're going to have to ask the questions about money. We're going to have to make sure people are equipped to handle money. We're going, to, we're going to have to make sure that we do this often. Jesus often connects a person, how they handle their, their finances, to the definition of discipleship. He often says, leave everything and follow me. Stop spending all of your life trying to acquire things and instead live for me. That's the very definition of discipleship that Jesus gives often. Because I think one of the things that happens is that evidently Jesus knew that the acquisition of money and possessions would be one of the biggest things, one of the biggest hindrances to people actually following him. And so he talks about finances and the subject of money in his stories, and he teaches on this subject more than any other subject in his teachings. And it's almost if Jesus had some insight into our hearts and how we process the gift of his money in our lives and how that actually represents how we worship him. Because the real fact is this. You and I are saying something about every dollar you spend. You and I are saying something about who we worship with every dollar we spend. And either it will be driven by faith in obedience, saying, I trust God, or will be driven by disobedience and unbelief and saying, I don't trust God. The reality is, is how we steward our finances, either if we steward them well, we're going to image God. And if we steward them not well, we're still imaging God. We're just giving an inaccurate picture of the kind of God that we actually serve. Our actions always reveal our theology. Everything you and I do always says something about what you believe about God. Our actions are always saying something. So the question for us to really to consider is, what are you and I saying about God through the way that we use money? In the past, we've defined stewardship as one who acts in the behalf of another. 
A steward is someone who, who looks at his master and says, how would my master use what he's given me? Basically, there's this heart level understanding that everything I have is mine. I'm not the owner of it. Rather, I'm the manager of it. I'm the manager of someone else's stuff. And I'm called to use those things the way the real owner would use them. And so what Proverbs does and what the rest of Scripture actually teaches us is that biblical wisdom, biblical stewardship is actually releasing everything that we have back to God for his purposes. And I want to say in order to do that, that really comes down to believing that God is actually sufficient. The fundamental question is, do you believe that God is sufficient? And if that he owns it all, and if he were calling you to give it all away, could he give it back to you? Could he take care of every need you have? Could he give you what you need to do in order to do what he calls you into? And if you truly believe that in your heart, you'll love stewardship. But if you don't believe that in, the, in your heart, you will hate stewardship and it will course against you. But if you truly believe that he's sufficient and that he owns it all and that he can give you everything you need to do what he's called you to, to then you'll have great joy and great expectation about what God might do as you trust him with what he's given you. That's when actually stewardship becomes good news to your heart. That you would say, let's see what God might do when I offer this up for him for his work. And when God works, God always does miraculous things. He always does things that we never expect him to do. And then we, that we actually release things back to his purposes. We get to see an opportunity of what God is going to do. And really, that's the basis. With that basis of the gospel, I want to talk about money this morning. And I want to call us as a family to be generous because since we're stewarding the image of a generous God. It's really the same posture that Solomon is writing from here in Proverbs. Solomon writes from this posture that he realizes that all the wisdom that he has, all the great riches that he has, all the things that, that he's accumulated over his life are actually generous gifts from God. And he writes Proverbs telling us how do we use God's generous gifts. So as we look at Proverbs for the, the last few weeks, one of the things that we've said is that wisdom is not the smartest thing to do. Wisdom is the submitted thing to do. And so likewise, when it comes to money, it's not, when we think about money and, and being wise, it's not the smart way to deal with money. It's the submitted way to deal with money. And so as you think about this idea of money and this idea of, of God calling us to steward other things, what do you think are some things that, that God calls us to steward that money can actually often control? If you're new with us, you get to answer at this time. Um, so if you're old with us, since that's what Katie said this morning, if you're old with us, you get to answer as well. Um, but what are some things that, that, money, that money has control over in your life? What are some other things that God's called you to steward for his image that money has some type of influence in? What are some other things? Is that a hard question this morning? I thought that was an easy question when I wrote it a couple of days ago. 
Food and shelter. Yeah, so how we use our home, how we use uh, our resources to be hospitable with our food comes into play with money. Yeah, good. What else? Okay, yeah. The jobs that we choose and the jobs that we, that we attempt to hold on to. Yeah, come into play on that. Yeah, good. What else? What else does money often play itself into in our lives? In our marriages. Yeah, one of the biggest fights or disagreements within marriages is over finances. It's one of the big reasons why many people get divorced. Yeah, good. What else? Okay, yeah, what I do with my free time and my, my entertainment and my, my, the time that I think is mine. Often money has, comes into play in that. Yeah, good. What else? Okay, yeah, meeting other people's needs. How, how can I be generous when I see and have opportunities to care for people? Whether we have money or not, that's going to play into that. Yeah, good. How much you eat out. Yeah. Where we go and eat. Yeah. Okay. What we're going to do in the future with it. Mm-hmm. What type of food I buy to eat. What type of food you buy to eat. Okay. Yeah. I want to say that the way that we deal with money actually infiltrates almost every other area of life. And this is a really important issue. And we need to get this right as a church because it says a lot about what we believe about God. And one of the things as elders is we want to always be doing is calling us back to faith and calling us to turn from sin. To, to stop serving lesser things and call us to worship God. To align, to align our actions with our theology. And how we use money often is an important thing, and the Bible has a lot to say about it. As you look through the Bible, it talks about using money really in three major categories, and we taught on this before, but if, you, if you've heard these things, there's three major categories, give, save, and spend. Please note, that's the order as well. Give, save, and spend. That all three of these things are actually directly connected in how we treat one another and how we image God. By how we give and how we save and how we spend will have a dramatic impact on how we use money in every category. For example, if I spend all of my money on myself and my lifestyle, there will be little for me to save and to give away. And what that does is that images to others that life revolves around me, that I am actually God. On the other hand, if I just save it all and I rarely spend any or I rarely give anything, what that is is that I think I am the provider. I'm relying on my savings to sustain me in life. And then my savings becomes my God. So how we actually treat each one of these categories will say something about what we truly think of God. And so I want to help us this morning to think and to equip us in these areas and I'm going to, what I'm going to do about how is we're going to actually focus most of our time um, on the very first one. And I want to give you a quick biblical o- uh, overview of the biblical theology of giving. 
And you may know some of these things already. You may have heard some of these things already. But I think it's important to look at the story of God from the very beginning until now to gain some insight into the area and into this pattern of how God calls his people to image him well in this area. Because I think if we can get this one right, it will have a proper gospel impact on the other two. Now, usually when we think about giving, the question that at least I've always heard, or the question that comes into my mind when I think about giving, is how much money should I give away? How much money should I give away? I want to say that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. As we think about this, we need to keep in mind that we are God's stewards and that everything we have is actually God's. So even the money in your hands is God's money. And God wants us to use his money for his purposes, not our own. So we should be asking an entirely different question. Instead of asking, how much should I give? We need to be asking, how much of God's money should I keep? How much should I actually keep? The good news is that we are not left alone to try to figure that out. Proverbs 2 says this. It's very clear and it tells us this as we think about wise living. It says, cry out for insight. And ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. The good news of the scriptures is that God, through his Holy Spirit, has given us input into this. And the Holy Spirit continues to speak to us today through his word and through other people as we ask and we get godly counsel into those things. That we get to now prayerfully search God's word and rely on his spirit to teach us how to use God's money. The reality is even before Solomon puts these things down, before God is penning his wisdom through Solomon, God gives us insight into his people on how we should actually spend his money. You can look all this up later, but in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, um, we see God set up this this plan with his people in regarding to, to how to use his, his money. And this first part of giving was actually called first fruits. What first fruits meant was that there was, there was a first part of all of their crops, of all of their animals, of all, everything they had, the first of everything they had belonged to God. And through giving of their first fruits, they would give these back um, to um, to the priest to deal with, but also through the first fruits, the priest's needs were actually met. The second thing we see them give towards was they were supposed to give sacrifices. So daily, dozens and dozens of animals were brought to be sacrificed. Bulls, sheep, goats, doves were brought to be sacrificed for the sins and burnt offerings and peace offerings. And there was this big sacrificial system that God instituted. And as you think about the sacrificial system, this would have cost people quite a bit. Either part of their physical resources to bring a bull or a goat, or part of their financial resources to purchase an animal every day to do a sacrifice. And by the way, the priests were also allowed to eat part of those sacrifices. It was a way that God was taking care of his people as well. Alongside of those two things, there were also two other tithes that people were required to bring from. Basically, they were to tithe from their net worth. A tithe means a tenth 
So the first tenth of their income was to be given to take care of the, the Levites. The Levites were, were people, they were kind of, you want to think about, they were the groundskeeper, the facility managers of the temple and the tabernacle. So the priests did all the sacrificings, and the Levites took care of everything else. And so God wanted to make sure those guys' needs were taken care of. And so that first 10% tithe was given to them. The second 10% tithe was, was given, and they were required to give this, and it was for an annual party. For the throwing of an annual party. It was a festival tithe. God said, take, everything, take 10% of everything you have and throw a party. This party was to be thrown wherever the central place of worship was. It moved around for a little bit, but then eventually landed in Jerusalem. And if you look at Deuteronomy, we see this from God. And it says, if you're too far away to haul 10% of everything you have, if you're too far away from there... Um, then what you do is you bring 10% of your money. And when you get there, you're supposed to do this. Deuteronomy 14, 25 says this. Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hands and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's the God we serve who desires us to actually celebrate and enjoy what he's given us. What would also happen is every third year at this festival that there would be a tithe, another tithe that was given to the Levites. To the Levites and to the widows and to the orphans. God wanted to make sure that those who couldn't earn on their own would be taken care of. If you look back um, two verses in Deuteronomy, we see God give us the purpose of what the tithe was. He says this, that you may learn to trust the Lord your God always. That was the purpose of the tithe, that you may learn to trust the Lord your God always. Now, in addition, there's more. There's more. It keeps coming. In addition to these festivals, there were three other annual festivals or parties that people would gather for. The Festival of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Weeks, and the Festival of Booths. These were week-long parties where people would come and celebrate a specific event in the history of what God had done for them. But also when they came to these parties, they were required to bring a free will offering. Basically, they would pass the hat and they would thank God during the festival and people were called to bring in whatever they chose and that would go towards widows and foreigners and poor to make sure that they had plenty to eat as well. And one other thing, on top of all of that, when there wasn't a festival going on or when they weren't sacrificing or they weren't giving a tithe, they could also give a free will offering anytime they wanted Whenever and whatever they wanted, they could, they could give a free will offering. And this would take place every year. Every year, over and over and over again. Then on the seventh year, God instructed them not to plant anything. And if you know anything about the people of Israel, it was an ark of... Man, I'm not going to say that word wrong. A society that planted things. 
It's not archaeological. That was what I was going to say, but now I can't think of the other word. Agricultural. Yes, agricultural. I should have drank coffee this morning. I don't drink coffee, but I should have. Well, actually, I did have some. Maybe that's the problem. Um, um, Agricultural society. That's what their economy was based on. And God was saying, I want you to give the land a rest. Take off from work for a year. Can you imagine not working, taking off work for an entire year? One out of every seven years, you're taking off work and you're trusting God to provide. You think about giving your entire salary a break for a year. One out of every seven years, you don't get a salary. And you trust God to provide. It's pretty amazing. I said that was the last thing, but there's one more. I forgot. There's one more thing. There's the principle of gleaning. If you know the story of Ruth and Boaz, you saw Boaz doing this for her. Where what you would do is actually when you picked your crops, you would leave, you would leave a portion of it for other people. God said, I want you to leave a portion of your grain or your corn or your grapes or whatever it is. I want you to leave a portion of it so that the poor can come into your fields when you're done taking your portion out of it and they can find grain to eat and grapes to make wine with and make sure that they're taken care of as well. Now, if you add up all of those things, I think this is probably a low estimate, but if you add up all of those things, that works out somewhere between 25 to 40% of your income. So anyone who thinks in the Old Testament that you're supposed to just give simply 10% really hasn't looked at Scripture very closely. So if you want to follow the standard for the Old Testament, it's about 25 to 40% of your income. That's what required. But if we look at what God says in in these things, I think God's God's telling us something, what he's concerned about in these these things. He's saying, I want... To make sure you take care of the needs of the priests and the Levites. I want you to make sure that you're taking care of the, leads, the needs of the spiritual leaders that I've put in charge of my people. The second thing he says in these things is I want to make sure that you're taking care of the least of these. Taking care of the orphans and the widows and the foreigners. And the third thing he says is I want to make sure that you're a celebratory people. He commands them to have a party. That they're the people who have the closest relationship with God, who walks among them, who loves them and makes them their children, and they have the most to celebrate. And he makes sure that they set that up in the way that they use their money. And what we see in all of these things is that God is teaching over and over again that he is actually the provider. He's the one that grows the crops. He's the one that brings the rain. He's the one that gives the land. And all these things were actually a direct assault on the idols of the nations around them. The surrounding nations had had idols for, for rain, the rain god and the grain god and the sun god, every other god you can think of that was related to their society and, and their economy. And they would worship each one of those and they would put their hope in each one of those things that hoped that there would be a harvest in the end. And God was saying through this giving that, that what I am saying is I am actually the provider and I'm a good God and you can trust in me. The second thing that they were doing when they were imaging this with their giving was God was saying, he's saying, I have de- delivered you and I've been kind to you 
And so I want you to be kind and generous to those in need. He's been gracious with us and we get to be thankful to him. That adds God's people. They were once slaves. They were once poor. They were once foreigners treated unkindly in Egypt. And God comes and saves them. And then God says, I'm setting this up so so that you would treat people who were in the same position that you were, the poor, the slave, the foreigner. And you were treated kindly and I want you to treat them kindly and graciously. Now, I know that as a church, and you know this as well, that we no longer live under the Old Testament law. It no longer requires those gifts. And so the good news is you're off the hook this morning. All right, you can all go home and we're done. All right, well, unfortunately, that's not true. Because we fast forward to Jesus, we find out that he actually looks at these Old Testament regulations and he says, these were good, but you should go further. You should actually give more. Take a look at what he says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These ought to have been done without neglecting the others. In other words, you guys are so legalistic about the way that that you tithe that you're even tithing your spices now. The smallest thing you own, you're measuring out 10% to make sure that you've got a tithe for that. You've gotten so good at tithing, but he he says, don't stop doing those things, but you're missing the bigger point. You're missing out on doing justice and mercies, really the matters of the heart. Jesus takes the Old Testament laws and says, that's important, but don't just legalistically conform to the law. God says, I want your heart. The good news is that it's not about your spice rack. Basically, God says, if I get your heart, I know that the spice rack will follow. And if you look at the book of Acts, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, and after he sends his spirit, we see the church, God's people, which is part of us now, were radically generous. In Acts chapter 2, it says they sold everything they owned. It says this, All who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need. See the same thing in Acts chapter 4. It says there was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of land or houses sold them, and brought them to the uh, proceeds of what was sold, was laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. We need to keep in mind as we read about this first church is that these people were mainly Jews. They were mainly Jews when this church first started who were living under the law prior to that, prior to coming to Jesus. And they could have easily continued to keep on doing um, and going on with the Old Testament um, forms of of giving but instead we see that the gospel actually motivates them to give more not less to give way more than what the old testament requirements are the new testament requirements for giving is actually to give generously that's the standard to give generously and as i think about the the new testament standard and i think about the culture um, that we live in and really that the church falls into, I think it often falls into two extremes. One, that we think about money, 
What we do is we say, when I obey God, he's going to bless me. Right? God then becomes this genie or sugar daddy so that when I give, I give so that I can get more blessings back. I can get some more stuff where I can, I'm going to give, I'm going to do these things so that like maybe someone, my friend is going to get healed from a sickness or whatever it may be. So we give more so we can get more back. The second extreme is this. People believe there's some kind of righteousness in being poor. In being poor and needy. And so anybody that actually has money must be ungodly. I've seen that often play out in churches. And people look down on other people for having money. And so you have this this gospel of the wealthy or the gospel of the poor. In the first, really, the wealthy are are righteous because, because God has blessed them because they had done what they're supposed to. And in the second, the poor are really righteous because they're not worried about those other things. But yet, if we look at Scripture, it says that you can actually have or have not and be unrighteous or righteous. You can have and be godly, and you can use it for God's glory, and you can have not and be godly and use it for God's glory. If you look at the parable of the steward, it's not what they have been given by the master that that they're commended for. It's what they do with what he's given them that that shows what they actually believe. That the way that they steward what he gives them actually reveals their theology, what they thought about the master. So as stewards of God's money, we're called to give generously. We're called to give generously. So we think about that. How then does the gospel motivate us? How does the gospel motivate us to be generous? What do you think? How does the gospel motivate us to be generous? I, I think for me, like, my tendency is to be generous with myself before somebody else. So, like, he changes that. Like, that I get to be generous to somebody else before being generous to myself. Hmm. You know, that's my tendency. So the part of the gospel is that God came and served us first, and we get to do that too, right? So we don't think about ourselves first. We think about someone else. Good. What else? Yeah, because of the gospel, we know that this is not actually our home. This is not the end. And so everything we have, we get to use for God's kingdom, knowing that we don't have to worry about holding on to it because God has already served us and given us something better. Yeah, good. What else? What else? How does the gospel motivate us to, to be generous people and to give generously? Yeah. 
Yeah, he allows us to participate with him in what he's doing to restore the world. And so how we give tells us how we believe in that. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. Mm. Yeah, it, it shapes who we believe is deserving. Is, am I the one that's deserving of these things or someone else? So we see all people as people in need of God, just like we were in need of him. Yeah, good. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds us of who we're actually imaging. Yeah, that's good. That's good. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, verse 9, uh, this is kind of in the context of Paul. Um, he wants the people in Corinth to give, to give towards an offering that he's collecting for needy people in Jerusalem. And in verse 9, he gives us the motivation behind it. He says this, For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus gave his life for us, and he gave himself to us in his spirit. The best motivation to give generously is actually in response to what Jesus has done for us. We don't give in order to gain approval. We don't give in order to gain approval of what, what God has given us. What we deserve was death, and yet he gave us life. We deserve nothing, and he gave us everything, including himself. That Jesus is our true treasure. That when we see him as the ultimate treasure, the stuff around us ceases to be treasures and becomes just simply things that we use for his purposes. And when that's the case, we're free to release our hold on anything because we understand that it doesn't save us or make us significant or define us. And when we don't give generously, what it means that we're treasuring stuff instead of Jesus. And when you treasure stuff instead of Jesus, it becomes just Stuff and, you, and you're going to feel the need to hold on to it. And as I think about this thing, I'm sure that there are people in this room that probably are living that way. You're not giving because you think it's actually your stuff. And it grieves my heart because it reflects your heart towards Jesus. And it's a serious issue. If you're not giving regularly, I want to urge you today to begin to give, to give consistently. And if you say, I can't afford to give, then you need to actually change your lifestyle. You need to tighten your belt if you want to say it that way. If you think about this, if your boss comes to you tomorrow and says, you know, the economy is really tough and you have a choice. You can either take a a pay cut or you can lose your job. What would you do? You'd probably take the pay cut and make it work. 
Probably every one of us would keep the job and we'd make an adjustment and we'd figure it out. How many of us actually spend 10 to 15% of our income on a car payment? Is your car payment more than you're giving? How about entertainment, eating out, going to Starbucks, going to movies, going to concert, buying whatever, paying for cable, paying for your pets? My guess is if you added all that up, we actually have plenty to share and we have plenty to be generous out of. But when we do this, it is going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something and it's that you really don't want to give up. And the reality is when we don't want to give those things up, it's actually selfishness. We need to consider these things. The way that you give should affect the way that you live. I've said this before, but if you and your neighbor are making the same exact amount of money, your lifestyle should be noticeably different. Because the way that you give a significant portion of your income away is going to change your buying power. You have a significantly less buying power than them. It should cause your neighbors to say, what is up with them? Why do they keep making choice after choice where they're not first? And the gospel urges you to be regular and faithful with your giving. And just like we talked about, the very first principle to follow is first fruits. Whenever you get paid, immediately set aside of amount of your income for giving. Whatever amount that is that you've determined in your heart, according with the gospel, what Christ has done for you, whatever percentage of that is that you've prayerfully considered, you take right off the top and you give it away. Because what that's going to do, it's going to actually force you to say, that I trust God with whatever's left of my paycheck that he's going to actually take care of. It's the same thing that they were doing in the Old Testament. They're saying, I'm trusting God with the rest. You may say, I have absolutely zero income almost. Then give faithfully and consistently with whatever you make. If you only make $50 a month, then give 5 to $10 or whatever regularly, whatever it is you, that you, you give when you get paid. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you'll give faithfully once you have more. You won't. Because you'll have grown into thinking that you use your money for yourself. And so the more you have, the less motivated you will be to give. Jesus says this, that if you are faithful with a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. This is a matter of a heart, not a matter of income or a matter of amount. Some of us probably need to hear the other side of this as well. Some of you have been super faithfully in giving. Some of you have been giving 10% for years upon years and upon years. And you need to ask yourself as well, has your faith grown in the past five years? Has your faith grown in the past 10 years? I hope that you would say yes. If it has, then I want to say that your giving needs to be reflected in that as well. The way that we give declares that my faith is continuing to grow. That I trust God more today than I did yesterday. And so therefore I'm going to give more and more away as I grow in my faith of God. 
you imagine what it would look like if all of us, by the time we got to 60s and 70s, I'll be past that myself, um, but if our faith had grown so much that by the time that, that we've got to that age, our reliance on God had grown so much that we learned to give away 50 to 60 to 70% of our income. What an opportunity we have to reflect Jesus. There is a confession of the gospel when we give. When we say the gospel, the gospel is who is God and what has he done for us and who am I in light of that? That's the gospel. That's what we believe. That's what we base our lives on. And I think most of you would say, I believe the gospel. That's your confession of the faith. And scriptures say that something flows out of that. There's implications in your life from that, that you actually really do believe the gospel. And if you believe the gospel, it will affect the way you live wisely with, the, with your work, with your rest, with the way you pray, with the way you love people, with the way you serve people, with the way you use your talents, and with the way that you give God's money back. Giving is an evidence that you believe the gospel. And I want to just remind us this morning, I know this may have been a little bit heavy, but we have a huge opportunity to image God in the city for who he really is. A city that is all about themselves. And we have an opportunity to image a God that is good and a God who is gracious and a God who continues to provide all that we need to do what he asked us to do. Do you believe that today? Do you believe that the gaps in your life are actually opportunities for God to fill you with his power and his strength and his provision rather than trying to maneuver and doing everything you can to fill it in and figure it out yourself? Would you actually pray and ask God in your heart that you actually believe the gospel? To pray that we would image him well as a family so that the world would know and see him not you and me, because we've gotten some accomplishments in our lives. I've said this before in the series of Proverbs, but there's really two contrasting lives in Proverbs. We have the life of the wise and the life of the fool. And how we use God's money will reveal what side of the coin you are on, whether the side of the wise or the side of the fool. A couple more Proverbs. Proverbs 11.28 reminds us this. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Proverbs 3 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. The good news is that you and I, we get to have freedom to use all that he has given us without fear of it ever running out without fear of missing out that you don't have the best because God has already given you his best. And I want to encourage us that we need to get this right. This is really important for us to learn to live wisely and to trust God in your finances that he is actually sufficient. To learn to open up our hands and release it to him that he would do whatever he wants with it, whatever he tells you to do, that you and I would do it that we would truly be servants of the king who owns everything because we're servants of the king who laid down his life first. We're not talking about a king who did 
who did everything for himself. We're talking about the king through, through eternity past. Knew what he was getting into. He knew what he was getting into when he became a baby. He knew he was going to give his life on the cross. He was a God who was eager to do the Father's will. Scripture says that Jesus always did what the Father told him. We're not talking about a king who procrastinated or made excuses. We're talking about a king who was faithful and obedient all the time. He saw the cross before him, and the Bible says that he set for joy that it was set out before him, he endured the cross. God did not give you or me the leftovers or whatever was left at the end of the month. He gave it all. And what a privilege we get to now display that to the world by the way that we steward what he's given us, by how gracious we are with his money. I want to pray for us, and then we're going to head to communion. Um, oh, Father, we thank you that you have been so gracious to us. Father, we thank you that we get to image that graciousness by the way that we use your stuff. Father, we thank you that you allow us to participate in those things. Father, I pray that you would make us a generous people, that we be generous so that we would see your kingdom move forward in this city, that we would be generous so that we would truly image the God that we know and love that sacrificed all for us. So, Father, we thank you that we get to be your people, that we get to be your children, and that we get to use our dad's stuff. Father, I pray that we would actually image you well in the way that we use our resources, in the way that we use the finances that you have given us to steward. So, Father, we thank you that we are not alone in this. Father, I pray that you, through your spirit, would open up our hearts and our minds to reveal our need of you. pray, Father, that you would change our hearts so that we would desire to live graciously and lovingly the way that you have been kind to us. So, Father, we thank you that we get to talk about these things this morning. Father, we thank you that we get to go to communion and be reminded that you gave your all for us. So, Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.